0: You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. And welcome to episode 63 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The NOM, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Paneris. This time around, I'm continuing my look at the five-part storyline of the death of Joe Hallen with part three in the Nam number 56. The song this episode is the same as our comic book's title, which is Whipping Post by the Allman Brothers. It was released in November of 1969, but made its biggest impact with a 22-minute live version that appeared on their 1971 Live at Fillmore East album. The full live version of the song received a lot of airplay on progressive rock radio stations in the 1970s, which resulted in the song being one of the band's most popular tunes. Our Story is written by Chuck Dixon, with art by Wayne Van Zandt and Tony DiZunica. Phil Felix was the literar and colorist, Don Daly was the editor, and Tom DeFalco is the editor-in-chief. The cover, once again, is by Andy Kubert, and this time is an electric blue background with a drawing of Hallen, Speed, and Gunny in combat drawn using white and a neon orange ink. Out of all the covers for this storyline, I actually find it to be the weakest, even if it does still keep up the idea that this is a special storyline, and anyone combing through the back issue bin in search of some non-books may have stopped to take a second look at this. The issue is dated May 1991. It was released on March 26, 1991. Our quote this time is from the book of Job, chapter 16, verse 11. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over into the hands of the wicked. Somewhere in Cambodia, Gunny has explained that this mission is not recon. It's hunter-killer. They've been loaned out to special ops, and this is on the hush-hush. Gunny sounds frustrated, and Speed mentions it's because... It's obvious that he blames himself for Goose's death in the previous store issue. Joe says that he definitely is responsible for it, and Speed says that Joe really is a hard case. But Joe quiets him because he spots two NVA soldiers making their way through the jungle. More show up, and it's a full platoon who have tons of supplies. Joe suggests heading up and taking them by surprise. Gunny says it's too risky because there are only four of them, and they should follow them because if there's more, they can call on a fire mission. Joe doubts him but goes along. They make their way through the jungle and Joe, who's on point, finds a huge camp. He tells Speed to move quietly back to Gunny and tell him to stay where he is, but it's too late for that as Gunny comes up behind him and makes enough noise for them to be possibly spotted. The guys sweat. Gunny says they have to wait until dark and Joe and Gunny argue over who was doing what that got them into the situation. Speed does some recon and comes back saying that they're trapped in there because the only way out is a hole near the hill but they'd make too much noise. They go over the possibilities. They can't stay here. They can't run. And they can only move if they have a diversion. Speed notes that it has to be a big diversion. Joe says that they call in a fire mission after they go to sleep, and that'll give them the chaos they need to get out. Marty says that they could be killed, but Joe notes that if they don't, they might be dead anyway. The fire mission comes in, and the guys run through the camp and head down to the river, although they're pretty sure that they have been spotted, so they call in more strikes to blow the trail behind them. They then hump it through the night, and after they are sure they have lost them, rest for a moment. Joe tells Gunny he did good, and then the radio comes on, telling the group to wait for their orders because they are to continue on their mission. When they get their orders, the orders are so secret, they are told to ditch their radio and take down map references. Joe is sure that the Marines aren't giving them orders, and they need to hide the radio for insurance. Gunny points out that this is contradicting a direct order, but Joe tells Gunny to trust himself and the team but nobody outside. Speed backs that up, and Gunny agrees to bury the radio before heading into what is a very rough country filled with the NVA, VC, Khmer Rouge, and Renegade Montagnards. They head out. As they walk, they quietly kill some VC on the trail and sneak around on their NVA armaments. They come back upon a clearing where a guy is sitting on a log cooking breakfast. He's American, and he's their mission. He tells Joe to get the rest of his guys over there, but Joe and the rest of them are rightfully suspicious. Our guy calls himself Jim and is vague about who he works for and what he does, but he does get specific about their mission, telling them that that there are some POWs they need to rescue. Gunny is annoyed that they didn't just mount a rescue operation and starts to protest, but Jim says, You listen. You follow my orders. You don't question what I say. You just do it. I can make your life a world of misery, my friend. Screw with me and I will hang you up by the short hairs. It's cake, Sarge. In and out. You and your buddies get to go home. So the Khmer Rouge approach and, tell, and Joe turns around raising his shotgun. Jim tells him not to worry about them. They are there to help them. Why are they helping them? Well, they grow hashish in those mountains, and Jim's helping it get distributed in Saigon. It's sketchy and they're uneasy about it, especially when one of them has to stay with Jim at the camp while the others go off to the POW camp. Did so they do recon on the POW camp, Joe says he doesn't like working for Jim and he's not sure whose side he is on. Gunny says that as much as they don't like the spook, he's their only way out of there, so they have to go along with it. And he won't take any belly aching. Joe says, I got it, but I don't think going home is going to be part of this gig. Wow, talk about building tension. This is going to be the mission that is the focus of much of the rest of the storyline. And that leads to what the title of the story is, The Death of Joe Hallen. How that death comes about, I don't want to spoil, but I will just say that the fact that these Marines are being brought into a very sketchy operation is a huge factor. Operations like this, where the CIA or other U.S. intelligence operations are involved in drug trafficking or smuggling in some way, have been rumored to have happened for decades, including during the Vietnam War. One of the most famous instances of this, which actually makes up part of a central plot of the movie Lethal Weapon, is that Air America, the civilian airline run by the CIA, was rumored to have been in the drug smuggling business during the war. CIA was involved in the Laotian Civil War, which was going on at the same time as the Vietnam War, and much of the United States' involvement in Laos was kept secret for a number of years, as was their involvement in Cambodia. It was mentioned in previous episodes and was the news that sparked the massive protests that led to Kent State in May 1970. Now the operation we're looking at here is just one mission in the larger scheme of things. It seems to have a more noble purpose to start with because it is a rescue mission for POWs, but seeing how shifty Jim is, we're not sure what's going to happen with it or who exactly they're rescuing. I thought that all around this issue did a great job of letting us know how much more dangerous this mission is, and that starts with a great sequence of the unit coming down upon the huge NBA camp and having to call in an airstrike in order to get the safety. They're extremely deep into enemy territory, and this point is emphasized time and time again. We also get some more great character development of Joe Hallen, who we know has a bit of a mean streak and is not afraid to question orders, but also obviously has respect for and has respect of the men he's with. I don't get the feeling that the people he's with will lead to his downfall. Yes, he questions Gunny and doesn't think that everything they're doing is on the up and up, but he's also not stupid. Dixon does a good job of making Joe, Gunny, Speed, and Marty the guys we want to look out for and care about and all the others, including Jim, a fellow American, people who we should be suspicious of. Once again, Van Zet and DiZeniga do a great job with the art. They take a matter-of-fact approach to the action scenes and don't try to get too splashy. They know how to set the mood and match it to the tone that Dixon is going for. Overall, this is a very good storyline, and I'm looking forward to seeing what's next. I'll be back after this with historical context, letters, and ads. 30 years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com. And 2TrueFreaks.com. So it's been a while since I've done a proper historical context segment, because that's most of the issues I've covered at this point don't have specific dates attached to them. But I wanted to cover the background of the war throughout the series, as well as throughout its actual history, so what I've decided to do is pick up where I left off. So unless the issue that I'm going to cover during a specific episode has a specific date or much attached to it, I'll be talking about the war chronologically, starting now with November 1969 and eventually reaching April of 1975, which is the fall of Saigon. So let's take a look at November of 1969. Uh, I've got this information, as always, from Wikipedia, also the history place. November 3rd, 1969, President Nixon addresses the nation, calling upon the, quote, silent majority to help support the Vietnam War effort. It was one of the most successful speeches of his presidency and boosted his popularity. According to Wikipedia, in his famous speech, Nixon contrasted his international strategy of political realism with the, quote, idealism of a vocal minority. He stated that following the radical minority's demands to withdraw all troops immediately from Vietnam would bring defeat and be disastrous for world peace. Appealing to the silent majority, Nick Nixon for asked for united support to, quote, win, end the war in a way that we could win the peace. The speech was one of the first to codify the Nixon Doctrine, according to which the defense of freedom is everyone's business, not just America's business. After giving the speech, Nixon approval ratings, which had been hovering around 50 Shot up to 81% in the nation and 86% in the South. And so tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. I pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace. I have initiated a plan of action which will enable me to keep that pledge. The more support I can have from the American people, the sooner that pledge can be redeemed. For the more divided we are at home, the less likely the enemy is to negotiate at Paris. Let us be united for peace. Let us also be united against defeat. Because let us understand, North Vietnam cannot defeat or humiliate the United States. Only Americans can do that. Sometime later, on November 12th, Seymour Hersh, an independent investigative journalist, broke the story of the My Lai Massacre. This is, of course, one of the biggest and most notorious stories of the war at this time. I've mentioned it before. And Wikipedia, again, has a pretty uh, concise summary of the media coverage uh, leading up to when Hersh broke the story as well as afterward. The first mentions of the My Lai Massacre appeared in the American media after Fort Benning's vague press release concerning the charges pressed against Lt. Calley, which was distributed on September 5, 1969. Consequently, NBC aired on September 10, 1969, a segment in the Huntley Brinkley Report, which mentioned the murder of a number of civilians in South Vietnam. Following that, emboldened Ronald Ridenauer decided to disobey the Army's order to withhold information from the media. He approached reporter Ben Cole of the Phoenix Republic, who chose not to handle the scoop. Charles Black from the Columbus Inquirer uncovered the story on his own, but decided to put it on hold. Two major national news press outlets, the, Time, the New York Times and the Washington Post, received some tips with partial information, but did not act on them. A phone call on October 22, 1969, answered by freelance investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch and his subsequent independent inquiry, broke the wall of silence that was surrounding the My Lai Massacre. Hirsch initially tried to sell the story to Life and Look magazines, both turned it down. Hirsch then went to the small Washington-based dispatch news service, which sent it to 50 major American newspapers, 30 of them accepted it for publication, New York Times reporter Henry Cam investigated further and found several My Lai Massacre survivors in South Vietnam. He estimated the number of killed civilians as 567. Next, Ben Cole published an article about Ronald Ridenauer a helicopter gunner and an army whistleblower who was among the first who started to uncover the truth about the My Lai Massacre. Joseph Esterhaus of The Plain Dealer, who was a friend of, of Ronald Haberly and knew about the photo evidence of the massacre, published the grossly images of the dead bodies of old men. Women and children on November 20th, 1969. Time magazine's article on November 28th, 1969, and Life magazine on December 5th finally brought Me Lai to the fore of public debate about the Vietnam War. Richard L. Stroud of the Christian Science Monitor political commentator emphasized that American press self censorship thwarted Mr. Ridenauer's disclosure for a year. No one wanted to go into it, his agent said. A telegram sent to Life Look and Newsweek magazines outlining allegations. Afterwards, interviews and stories connected to My Lai and Esker started to appear regularly in the American international press. And My of course, only escalates the tension between those supporting the war and those against the war, a tension that would not go away anytime soon and would boil over into incidents such as Kent State, which I talked about back in episode 53. Well, there are no letters this month. There's no letter column and no nom notes. So let's just take a quick look at... The ads. Uh, We have the Double Dragon 3 ad. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cereal. Check it out. New pizza-shaped marshmallows and Ninja Turtles cereal. It's radical-tasting cereal, dudes. The score, the Mickey Mantle of baseball cards. There's a new seven-card series of hand-signed Mickey Mantle cards. 38,500 cards in the limited edition. 2,500 are personally autographed. So they're basically chase cards in the 1991 baseball card uh, set. Or you can win one by enter- entering the mail and sweepstakes. And there's, let's see, the Rookie, Triple Crown, World Series, Going, Going, Gone, Speed and Grace, true Yankee, and Twilight. So they're all supposed to highlight Mickey Mantle's career, uh, I guess, as a way. You know, the the if you read the... Um, you read books about or read about the baseball card market during the the early nineteen nineties. It was just as as um, oversaturated as the uh, comic book market. So you have all these sorts of gimmicks and stuff that because there was this huge amount of competition and companies trying to one up one another. For instance, Upper Deck had a baseball heroes collection, and Nolan Ryan. Um, had 2,500 autographed cards in various sets of the 1991 Upper Deck. And Upper Deck cards were expensive because they were actually kind of like, look, they were glossy. They were thicker cardstock. They looked like um, actual photographs, you know, in that sense. Um, And uh, they had a hologram, little hologram logo on them. Uh, Upper Deck was definitely the image comics of, of the baseball card world at the time. We have an ad for the Taxon G.I. Joe video game for the Nintendo. Um, This is a game I've never played yet wanted for years. And, And I remember in the very, very first issue of Nintendo Power, it was teased um, because they they had this section in the back of the of the magazine where it's like you know coming soon and GI Joe I think GI Joe and RoboCop at some point were both previewed but there was no graphics or anything it was just they were announced so I think GI Joe kind of sat in quote development hell for for the video game for for quite a while which is uh, which is interesting in, in a sense there is a Spider Man. 1-900 game where you can call and answer Spider-Man trivia to help Spidey scale a wall and save Mary Jane from Doc Ock and the Hobgoblin. You can win a 10-volume Marvel library plus a Spider-Man watch, Marvel trading cards, and a comic book. Bullpen bulletins this month. Um, and... This is all sorts of April Fool stuff. Saying that Archie has stands t- saying that Archie has bought Marvel and DC. The X Men have accepted the application of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to join their team. Um, and then uh, basically, there's all sorts of fake items. All Marvel editors have been required to shave their heads by April 30th. Renee Winner Stater promised a new direction for what the it will be grimmer and grittier. Um, sure, Dan Dio didn't run that. Um, uh, Kevin Tang was the big winner at the Halloween in the Limbo and Human Snake competition, and then took a uh, and then Dan Slot, yes, that Dan Slot is back now serving as one Marvel's one man art return department. Um, they say you're both fired now, get out of here. April Fool, um. Bob Hope came by, it says, and that's the April Fool's joke there, Um, there's a Toxic Avenger joke, it's all sorts of silliness, Sleepwalker is a brand new title, debuting this month as a superhero book with... Unusual twist: the comic book concerns the adventures of a crime fighter sweet who walks around asleep, defeating criminals by accidentally bumping into them. April fool. So yeah, um, and then Anna's type, there's some uh, official Mar- Marvel licensed products coming out, and Spencer's is going to be is going to be carrying um, some of those. Uh, ooh, we have a Three Musketeers adventure on the back cover. Number four in a series, High atop the e- Eager Pass, a team of sports photographers risk their lives for the ultimate shot. The key to the sports photography is being prepared for anything. I've got two cameras, a zoom lens, fil- extra filters, ex- flashes, extra film. As a result, I'm never surprised by anything. Wanna bet? Wow! Take a picture before we eat it. It's a big Three Musketeers bar. Where will Three Musketeers turn up next? Big on chocolate. And the back page is a Dungeons & Dragons uh, Advertising for a brand new Dungeons & Dragons game And that's it, really um, We will be moving on next issue With the NOM number 57 Which is going to be part 4 of 5 Of The Death of Joe Allen. Uh Some more historical context As well as uh, some letters and ads Hopefully in that issue uh, Until then, thanks for listening Take care no, <laughs> You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders, and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit affidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at Facebook.com slash in country podcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Corps of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The NOM.